Welcome to the Renaissance Podcast, and thank you for joining with us to worship and learn more about God. We are so excited to have you be a part of this week's service. For more podcasts and services from past weeks, or to join us online on Sunday mornings, check out the Church at Home page at rendicator.org. Now, enjoy the message. Hey, welcome to Renaissance. My name is Joe, and I am one, hi, I'm one of the leaders here, and uh, I'm really glad to be with you this morning. We're going to be continuing our Bible study in the book of 1 John, so if you have a Bible with you, go ahead and open up to 1 John chapter 2. We'll start in verse 28, but I just want to say that I, I know that when we come to church, we come bringing different experiences from our week, sometimes from the past month, sometimes from the past year in with us, and we often hope that God will somehow connect with us in a way while we're here with other people. And, and we all come with different kinds of experiences, joys and sorrows. For example, this past week, just in the past seven days, I've officiated two weddings, and, and what wonderful new life comes from those sorts of things and how exciting it is to see people begin a new life together. And then just this weekend, some members of our church family here have lost a loved one even. And so we all, we all come from different experiences with different, different needs and different sorrows and, and different joys, different problems, different things that God is doing for us and in us and through us. And in every experience, what we can expect from God is to receive what he's promised us in Jesus, new life. Whether it's a beginning or an ending, we get something new from him. And so I, I, I want us to, to focus on that today because that is what we're promised in Jesus is, is newness of life through him because God is our father. Now in 1 John, as we've been studying, we've learned that the apostle John who wrote the book consistently refers to the people he's writing to as little children. And Chris pointed out last week that it's, it's not in a derogatory manner to say, oh, you're little kids, pat, pat on the head. You, you don't know much, and so I'm here to teach you. It's, it's in a fatherly way because John at this point we believe is very old. And so he walked with Jesus while Jesus was on the earth, and he's served with Jesus served Jesus for many years up to this point. And so he does have a lot to offer. And so he says little children over and over and over again, and he mentions that here in verse 28, but he also points out something important here that he hasn't yet, and it is that not only is he saying you're little children because he's much older than the people he was writing to, he's saying you're little children because we're children of God. He highlights that in this passage. That's what we're going to look at today. What, what does it mean for us to be children of God and receive that newness of life that he's promised to us? So 1 John chapter 2, verse 28, if you have a Bible, let's read together. If you don't have a Bible, we'll put the words up on the screens. If you don't have a Bible because you don't own a Bible, we want you to have a Bible. So we'll, we'll give one to you. Come see me at the welcome station before you leave today. We'll put a Bible in your hands. We believe everybody should have a copy of the Bible. But let's go ahead and read 1 John chapter 2, starting in verse 28. It says this, And now, little children, there it is, abide in him so that when he appears... We may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. See what kind of love the Father 
the, the heavenly father God has given to us that we should be called children of God. And so we are. The, the reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he, as God, is pure. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness because sin is lawlessness. And you know that Jesus appeared in order to take away sins and in him there is no sin. And no one who abides in him keeps on sinning. And no one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous, as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning, which is the title of my favorite Motley Crue song, Sinning from the Beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared... See, isn't the Bible awesome? The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. If, if you want to know why Jesus came to the earth, this is, this is why, to destroy the works of the devil. We'll talk about that in a little bit. Verse 9, no one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. There are a lot of places you can go in this passage. We could talk about whoever makes a practice of sinning is not born of God. We could talk extensively about what it means that Jesus came to destroy the works of the devil. I'm going to focus in on the fact that we are God's children today, though, from this passage. So will you take some time to pray with me and ask God to help us understand? Lord, we're so thankful that you call us your children. We're so thankful that you have given us new life. We're so thankful that you have welcomed us and received us into your family through your son, Jesus. I pray that we will leave here with a better understanding of that. I'll leave here knowing more about your love for us. Lord, teach us more about your love today than we've ever known. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So John makes this very strong point here that God has given us this wonderful blessing, this wonderful gift of being called his children. Now, we have to be careful with that phrase, we are the children of God, because I have said this before, and I'm sure many of you have said it, and we hear it all the time, this, this phrase right here, we're all God's children. Have you said that before or heard that, that we're all God's children? And, and in one sense, that is true in that God has created all of us, and God has created us in his image, in his likeness, the Bible says, that God has, has created us. And because he created us, because he made us in that very real sense, we are his children. But when it comes to our spiritual nature, the statement, we're all God's children, is untrue. It's not biblical. It's not theologically accurate. We are only God's children spiritually if we have faith in Christ. So the Bible tells us that before we have faith in Christ and, and God brings us into his family through this process that Jesus called being born again, and as he's describing this to a man named Nicodemus, he says to him, everyone must be born again. And Nicodemus hears that phrase, and here's what I love about the Bible is that it points out that sometimes spiritual phrases 
are weird. And Jesus says, you must be born again. So this guy Nicodemus goes, am I supposed to crawl back into my mother's womb? Oh, that's a nightmare right there, <laughs> isn't it? It's like, he says this to Jesus. Am I supposed to crawl back into my mother's womb? And, and Jesus says, no, 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 you don't understand. You must be born again spiritually. There must take a, take a change. A change must take place inside of you. A spiritual rebirth must take place. And this happens through our faith in Jesus. And the reason why we need this is because of choices are great, 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 so on and so forth, Father Adam made. Now, the Bible would tell us that God made man and woman. He named them Adam and Eve, and he placed them in this beautiful garden he called Eden. And while they were in that garden, God said to them, you can eat of any tree in the garden. You can have your pick of any fruit that you want except for one. He called it the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And he said, do not eat from that tree. That's the only rule. Well, maybe you know the story that they broke that rule, the only rule God had given them. And because of that, God had to eject them from their place in that garden. They lost their position as God's children in that moment. And since then, all of us who are born into the earth are born into this world as children of Adam, with Adam's sinful nature, with Adam's sinful desires, with Adam's bent to do the thing that God said not to do. We're born into this world with a desire to disobey God. And because of that, we have to be changed from the inside through our faith in Jesus. And once this happens, once we place our faith in Jesus and we are born again, as Jesus described it, we become what the Bible says in Galatians and Romans. We become adopted into God's family. And so in that sense, God brings us into his family and through this rebirth, through our faith in Jesus, we become children of God. Are you tracking with me? We're not all God's children. We're all God's children if we have faith in Jesus. Now, when we place our faith in Jesus and God has adopted us into his family, what this means is that once we have been adopted, we cannot be disowned. The, the culture that, that that explanation about God adopting us into a fa our fam his family was written in, the Roman culture at that time that the New Testament was written in, for those people, for adoption, when you adopted a child into your family, they ha had the same familial status as the rest of the kids. They were one of your kids, just like the rest. They were not a lesser class child. And once adopted, the child could not ever be disowned. The child could not remove himself from that family. The father who adopted them could not kick them out no matter what they did, no matter what they said, even if they slandered the family name. They could not be unadopted. Once adopted into God's family, he keeps us. Jesus said, I hold my sheep. He calls us his sheep. So there are times when in society we hear people being called sheep, and I always say, yes, I'm one of those sheep. I'm one of Jesus's sheep. He said, my sheep, I hold them in my hand, and no one can take them away from me. No one can pluck us out of God's hand. The Bible says in Romans chapter 8 that nothing can separate us from God's love. So once adopted into the family, I like to think of it this way, he stuck with me. He's stuck with me now. He's joyfully 
stuck with me. And as his children, here's the thing. He doesn't just adopt us into his family so that we can walk around with his name now. He, he does have certain desires for us, like all good fathers have for their children. He wants things for them. He, he, he wants them to have certain things in life. He wants us to have certain things from him. He wants us to, to live as part of his family in a way that, that shows to the world how wonderful it is to be one of God's children. And one of these things that he desires for us is that we would be confident. In verse 28, it says, now little children abide in him so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. His confidence is not a self-confidence, which will get you very far in this world, but it will only take you so far This confidence that Jesus is speaking of is not a confidence in our own abilities. It's not a confidence in our good looks. It's not a a confidence in our our social status or, or what kind of family we came from. It's a complete confidence in God's love for us. It's, it's a confidence knowing that his love will never change. His love is unending. His love is undying. His love is unflappable. He is unmovable for us. He wants us to have complete confidence in his love. This is the kind of confidence that God desires for us as his children. And additionally, he wants us to be confident in our relationship with him. If you've been in relationship with a person, whether romantic or just as friends, and you weren't confident in that relationship, you know how difficult it is to maintain a relationship with that person. If you're consistently questioning in text messages their motive, if you're questioning the the way that they look or the way that they say something to you, there's no confidence in the relationship. And some of us know people like that, and some of the reasons that we're not confident in the relationship is because we're insecure. Some of the reasons we're not confident in the relationship is because the other person is manipulative and they like to keep us unconfident in the relationship so we keep coming back to to display our loyalty to them. But he wants us to be so confident in the relationship that we know that no matter what, and maybe you've heard the phrase before, is that what you want to be doing when Jesus comes back? That even in our deepest, darkest moments, if Jesus stumbled in on me in a moment where I absolutely said, I don't want to be there, where Jesus comes back, I could still be confident in his love for me, be confident in the status of my relationship with him. Now, confidence in relationship will take you a long way. My now wife, when I was um, thinking about asking her to go on a date with me, I was incredibly terrified of doing this and and I I was scared to death like I don't know if she's gonna like me I don't want to be rejected and we were already friends and I was really good friends with her brother-in-law so I'm like I could just ruin a whole bunch of things if this goes poorly so so I'm like but I want to spend time with her because I want to find a way to to find out does she like me do I really like her is is there any kind of way where I can weasel my way into her life okay and so (laughs) If I were more confident in myself, I would have gone up and said something like, hey, would you like to go out sometime? Like, that's what confident, that's what real men do, right? Right, Rick? That's, that's what we do. That's what men with chops like Pastor Josh has do. Someone asked me this morning, are you going to shave your face like that? I said, I'm going to have to produce more testosterone to get to that point in life. I, I just don't have that kind of, 
kind of confidence. If I had more confidence, I just would have gone up and said, would you like to go out with me sometime? But I didn't. So what I did instead was I went around to a group of friends because I'd heard that she wanted to see the movie Bohemian Rhapsody. Remember when that came out, the, the movie about the band Queen? It was a great movie. So I heard that she wanted to see it when it came out. And so when it came out, I went around to a group of mutual friends, and I was like, hey, I'm thinking about seeing Bohemian Rhapsody tonight. Do you want to go? And over and over and over again, they all said, no, I'm sorry, I can't make it tonight. So then I go to Megan, my now wife, so you know how the story ends. But I go to her, and I, I say, hey, me and some friends are going to go see Bohemian Rhapsody tonight. <laughs> do you want to come? And she's like, yes, I want to see that movie so bad. And I was like, oh my gosh, well, you should totally come. And so I'm on my way to the movie knowing that it's just going to be her and I. And she thinks that it's going to be her and I and other people. Well, she finds out as she's doing her research. I knew she was smart, but I didn't know she was this smart. She's doing her research to, to see who all's actually going. And when she finds out that none of them are going and it's just going to be her and I, she's like, whoa, what's going on here? See, what I didn't know was she kind of liked me too. And she also lacked confidence in that. So she's like, I don't want to go here and him think that I think this is a date. And then it gets weird. So I'm in the parking lot of the movie theater. And she texts me and says, I am so sorry. I'm not going to be able to make it tonight. Something suddenly came up. <laughs> of course it did. Of course it did. And I'm like, well, I've been here before, so I blocked her from my phone and my contacts. Just kidding. I didn't block her, but I did go see that movie by myself. And to make a long story short, I saw that movie by myself three times because the same thing happened over and over because I wasn't confident enough to just say, would you like to go out with me sometime? She wasn't confident enough to consider that I was actually trying to weasel my way into her life. Confidence in that relationship would have gone a long way. And when I finally had the confidence to write her a note that said, will you go out with me, circle one, yes or no, and slide it across the table, true story. <laughs> and she thought I was joking then because she wasn't confident enough. We could have avoided so much heartache. Now we have this fun story, but that is not the kind of relationship God wants with us. He wants one of full confidence where there is no question from us how much he loves us because he does not want us to experience this, this S word here in verse 28, shame. Shame. When Jesus died on the cross, we, we have the, the paintings, we have the statues, we have the, the, the nice pictures and the movies that show him uh, wearing something like a loincloth on the cross. Really what they did when, when you were crucified, you were stripped completely naked so that you, when you walked through the town and, and when they nailed you on the cross and hoisted you up for people who passed by to see so they could see your naked and shameful body. So as Jesus is hanging on the cross, he's not just taking our sins onto himself, he's taking our shame onto himself as well so that our relationship with him can be one of confidence and not of shame. So many of us are cowering before God. So many of us are afraid to come to church. I had an aunt who has since passed away and she grew up Catholic and she hadn't gone to church in seven years because she truly believed that if she walked through the doors, it would collapse on her. 
That was her picture of who God was. This is not the picture that God gives us. He wants us to be so completely confident that even if we've run so far away from him, even if we've completely rejected him as much as we can, he wants us to know he's going to do everything he can to come remind us how much he loves us. The greatest picture that we, I see of this in the Bible is found in Luke chapter 15. And I, I want to go there and read a few of the verses from it. Now, the story that we're going to really dig into in, verse, in chapter 15 here is, is in the context of, we always have to, whenever we read scripture to really understand it, we have to understand it in its context. What was written before it? What was written after it? What, what's Jesus doing as this is going on? So in chapter 15, verses 1 and 2, it says, the tax collectors and sinners, we say, boo, tax collectors, boo, right? Sorry, Cheryl. T- tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear him, to hear Jesus. So people that the religious right, the radical liberals were drawing near to hear Jesus, and the religious right says, they don't belong there. <laughs> they don't belong with this guy. And the Pharisees, which is interesting to me, I told myself I wasn't going to say this, but I'm going to say this. Jesus, you find him in the homes of the radical liberals. You find him in the homes of the religious right. Jesus was so broad in his embrace of every person who would come to him. And you know what we often say? We say, Jesus always called out sin. And you know what? That's not true. The only reason we say that is because we want to hear a preacher talk about people who are worse than us. Jesus didn't call out sin. You know what he called out was hypocrisy. Hypocrisy. We're all guilty of that. What he consistently did was found time to sit with people that other people on the other side didn't want anything to do with. This is who Jesus is. He bridges the gap between God and man. And in the book of Ephesians, it tells us that he tears down walls between groups of people as well. And he does this by just sitting with anybody who'd be willing to take some time with him. There's my high horse. Kick that over. (laughs) And the Pharisees and scribes, the religious right, they grumbled. And they said, this man receives sinners and eats with them. How can he be a righteous teacher if he's eating with sinners? How can he be sent from God if he's spending time with sinners? And they don't even say this to Jesus, but because Jesus is Jesus, he knows their hearts. And he knows that they're grumbling inside. And, and he turns to them and he says to them, he tells them a parable, which is what he's always doing. He's always telling stories to make points about how God relates to people. And he tells a parable about a shepherd who had 100 sheep. And one of those sheep went missing, wandered off. Now it's shocking to me that the shepherd was so aware that one out of a hundred actually went missing. Jesus knows us when we run away from him. That's just a side thing. Jesus knows when we're running away from him. And he says, this shepherd, one of his sheep went away. And do you know what he did? He left the 99 and went and found that one sheep that had gone astray. And he brought him back and he was rejoicing. And he said, I had a hundred sheep Then I only had 99. Now I have 100 again. In the grand scheme, that's 1%. You can write that off. That's not that big of a deal. Jesus says, this is what God is really like. This is why I'm eating with sinners. This is why I'm sitting down with the people you hate is because I want everyone to see that God sits with everyone. 
He tells him another parable. There was a woman who had 10 coins and she loses one of her coins and she searches all night. She like goes back to the car and looks under the seat, gets a flashlight out, looks under the couch. You know, when you lose your debit card, what you do, you backtrack every place you go. She's doing this and then she finds the debit card and she calls all her friends who she's called to say, hey, have you seen my card? Is my card at your house? Did I leave it there? She calls them back and rejoices and says the coin that I lost is found. He tells us that she throws a party. And then he tells a parable about a man who had two sons. And these, we get the idea that this is a wealthy man because he owned land and cattle and lots of things. And the younger son comes to the father and says, Dad, I would love for you to go ahead and give me the portion of my inheritance that's coming to me now. In other words, since you're not dead yet, can you go ahead and give me what's going to be mine one day? Oh. Oh, the audacity. You know what the father does? He, Jesus says that he gathers his things and he gives him his portion of the inheritance. And so what does he do? If you are familiar with the story, it's the parable of the prodigal son, this prodigal son, the son who wanders away. He spends all of that money. He goes away to a far country. So he leaves the land of his ancestors, which for a Jewish man was a no-no because it was believed there was safety in their land. It was believed that God actually lived in their land. And so what he's doing is he's running completely away, not just from his family, but from God. And he finds himself in a place where he wastes all of his money, we learn. The Bible says in one translation, in riotous living. It says in the English Standard Version, in reckless living. And he wastes his money on prostitutes. He buys a Bugatti. And he, he just, at the end of the day, he's got nothing left. And he wishes that his friends who were there when he had all of the money and was throwing wild parties were still around. But what happens to him once he spends all of his money, his posse goes away because now he has no use. They have no use for him anymore. And so we learned that in verse 17, after he had found a job feeding, slopping hogs, essentially, which for a Jewish man was, was bad. Pigs were unclean. The only job he can find in this land is to slop hogs. And so as he's slopping hogs, he just wishes, he's so poor and destitute, he just wishes that he could even eat some of their food. But if you've seen hogs eat, they leave nothing behind. There are no leftovers for him. And he wishes he could have some of their leftovers even. But verse 17 of Luke 15 says this, that at some point he came to himself. He just came to himself. His eyes were opened and he, he realized how many of my father's hired servants, how many of the guys who do what I'm doing right now for this guy, but for my dad have more than enough bread. Gosh, I remember that my dad took such good care of his ranch hands. He took such good care of them. They had more than enough to eat, but here I am perishing with hunger. Here's what I'll do. I'll arise and I'll go to my father and I'll say to him, father, I have sinned against heaven and before you, and I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Would you treat me as one of your hired servants? So when he comes to himself, his conclusion is that I have left my father and he's probably super angry with me, but if I come back to him groveling, 
maybe he'll take me back and just hire me and I'll be able to work for him. I won't be a son anymore. I won't, I won't have all of the inheritance that I once had, but at least it'll be better for me than it is now. Well, we learn that he decides to go back and the Bible tells us that the father saw him from a distance as though he was watching for him the whole time. And then the Bible tells us that when he realized it was his son, he had compassion and started running towards him. Now, for us, that makes a lot of sense. But for a man like that in that time of world to run, well, it means a lot of things. So they all wore these long robes, right? And so they had to do what they called girding up their loins. If you've ever heard that phrase, gird your loins, so you take the back of the robe and tuck it into your belt. And so now you've got gauchos on. And so... <laughs> He's got, to put, he's got to change his robe into gauchos real quick and run, which is a very undignified thing for a man of status like him. He doesn't have to run to do anything. He's got people for that. He could send servants. You go, I think that's my son. Go get him and bring him here. But when he sees him, he puts on his gauchos and he takes off towards his son and he grabs him and he embraces him and his son tries to do that spiel. Would you just hire me back? I'm really sorry. I've done a lot of dumb things. And he's like, just shut up. I'm so glad you're home. Hey, would you bring some new clothes for him? Hey, would you bring around that car that I bought for him while he was away? Hey, put, the, put a ring on his finger. Let's kill the fatted calf for him. My son, I thought he was dead. He's alive again. Why does Jesus tell this parable? Because as people come to him and say, why are you hanging out with sinners? Why are you hanging out with people who, who God would have nothing to do with? Jesus tells his parable to say, this is what God is really like. Even when we're at our worst even when we're at our farthest from him, if we approach him, we can come with complete confidence that we don't even have to do the running to him. He does the running towards us. So what does he want us to do? He wants us to be confident in that and consider how much that he loves us. This is this is a, a perfect display of God's love for us, that no matter how far away we've drifted, no matter uh, of the despicable things we've done or said or thought, the way we've treated others, God always wants us to just come home. Now, if we look back in 1 John, we see that while we're home, he does have expectations for our behavior. He does want us to live in a way that reflects who he is. He wants us to honor the family name, so to speak. But he wants us to have such a confidence in knowing that no matter what, we still keep the family name. We're still part of his family. We're still completely loved by him. Now, I want to briefly mention verse 8. It says the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. Now, I don't like to talk about the devil a whole lot, not because I'm afraid of him, but because I just don't want to give him much time of day. But since John mentioned him, we'll talk about him a little bit. And the devil, the Bible would tell us, is, is a person that is also called Satan. And Satan literally means accuser. So if you think of the idea of a prosecuting attorney who brings before a judge a case against a criminal, this is Satan before God, for us, bringing a case to God 
for us, accusing us of our sins before God. And here's what hurts most about that, is that he's usually right about the things he's accusing us of. He's got a case. He's prepared in court with his case before God to accuse us of the sins. We're guilty of them. But the Bible, when it says Jesus came to destroy the works of the devil, he came to destroy his ability to accuse us in God's presence. And so those moments where we feel like I can't run back to my father because he'll think this or he'll do this or he'll reject me, that is the voice of the accuser lying to us, making us assume that God is going to picture us in a certain way. Jesus has come to destroy the works of the devil. A couple of weeks ago, we talked about how Jesus is our advocate with the Father. So if the devil is our accuser before the Father, our prosecuting attorney, Jesus is our advocate, our defense attorney before the Father. And he stands before him and says, you have no case because he's wiped our slate clean. Now the book of 1 Peter says that the devil walks around like a roaring lion looking for people to devour. And all of my life I've been taught All of my life while I've been in church, I've been taught that what that means is I better watch out because everywhere I go, the devil is trying to get me. The devil's out to get me. The devil's out to make me do bad things. The devil's out to to harm me. But here's what Peter says. He says, he's like a roaring lion. Not that he is a roaring lion, just that he's like a roaring lion. In other words, this is a shih tzu in a lion costume. Okay, you know what the Bible says of Jesus? That he is the lion. Okay, so this devil that that Jesus has destroyed the works of, he has no power over me because Jesus is more powerful than he is and has conquered him for our sake. So the voice of the accuser that we hear and that we entertain has been defeated and the only voice that we hear from God is just come home to me. I love you. I don't want you to shrink in shame when you think of me. Come home. What what does God say to us? He says, come home. Come home. If we're a child of God and we've wandered, just come home. If you don't know who God is, if you're not a child of God, just come home. He's got a seat for you in his home. If we're, maybe we're really good. Okay, Maybe, maybe, maybe we're one of those people who are, are never failing. We're, we're always faithful and we're really good. And sometimes we didn't read this part in the story of the prodigal son, but there was an older brother who was really upset that his younger brother came home and got a party thrown in his favor because the older son had never gotten one and he'd never ran away. Maybe we're like the older son and we're like, I never do anything wrong. I ought to go out sinning just so I can feel good for God's love for me. You know what the father said to that man is, everything I have is yours. Everything I have is yours. This is true of us who are children of God. Everything he has is ours. So no matter where we find ourselves, whether we're always really good, which is you're probably in the minority if that's the case, whether you're always running away, which you're probably in the majority, if that's the case, or if you've never stepped foot into God's family, he always has a place for us because he loves us so much. Would you pray with me, Lord? We're so thankful that you love us so much. We don't know what we would do without your love for us. We don't know what we would do without being able 
to stand before you confident, knowing that you love us. Lord, I pray for every person in the room who is experiencing any kind of shame because of things that they've done this weekend or because of conversations or interactions that they had this week. I pray that you will remove their shame and replace it with confidence in what Jesus has done. Lord, I pray for those in the room who are fearful of of attacks from the devil. I pray that you would open their eyes to the truth that he has been defeated on the cross of Christ, that he has no power over us. Jesus, you are victorious. You are the, as the Bible says, the lion of the tribe of Judah. You are the powerful one. You, you are the true king. You have all power in heaven and in earth. So Lord, we look to you as the one who is all powerful to change our perception of you. Help us to see you as that loving father who just says, come home. We thank you, Lord, that that's who you are. And we love you in Jesus' name. Thanks for joining with us today. We would love to pray for you and make a connection with you. So please check out the Church at Home page at rendicator.org. Here you can ask questions, request prayer, find past messages and podcasts, or support Renaissance through online giving. We can't wait to hear from you.